0: This evening's scripture is going to be taken from Psalms chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters, he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know it, my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you'd like to go ahead and turn to Psalm 23. We're going to live in Psalm 23 tonight. We're going to spend about the next 30 or 40 minutes and uh, just go through it verse by verse. So I really want to do three things. First of all, I want to give just a little bit of an update on the uh, college program, some things that are going on. And then I want to uh, to go through Psalm 23 verse by verse. I want us to do an exegesis. I want us to go through and see if there's a message for us today. And then the third thing we'll do is try to identify that message and how it helps us to be completely committed followers of Christ. Uh, Friday, just as an update on the college group, Friday, Philip and I had the opportunity to go to University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Some of you know, we've been going out and visiting with the college students and eating a meal with them and, and kind of seeing their environment and what's going on, and, and if possible, visiting a church or something. And so, it's just been a, a thrill to do that. Uh, Friday, we were down at the University of uh, Tennessee. We drove down to Chattanooga. It took us a couple of hours. We ate at uh, Sticky Fingers. That was a, a thrill. Got to eat with uh, Emily Robinson. And, uh, and Connor Bell, so we got a chance to eat with a couple of our college students and hear what's going on in their lives. And uh, i just tell you, I left there just a different person. I mean, it motivated me and encouraged me and, and fired me up as much as anything I've encountered in the last probably 15 years. If you want to know how to be a completely committed follower of Christ, you go talk to Emily and Connor. If you want to know how to be a light to the world, you go talk to Emily and Connor. If you want to know how to balance an extremely busy life with your walk, you go talk to Emily and Connor. If you want to know how to live in the middle of a mission field 24-7, as ripe as a mission field can be anywhere in the world, you go talk to Emily and Connor. Connor had just gotten back from a mission trip that he'd gone with a bunch of the Christians from the Christian students down there in the Dominican Republic. And so he was fired up about that. They both had been on a retreat some time ago with the whole group down in Florida. There was another retreat uh, this weekend in Pigeon Forge for that group of Christians that are trying to, to live as lights at that, that college campus. And uh, they have that Bible studies, uh, devotionals, uh, all kinds of things on. I think that we at West 7th owe the Central Church of Christ a debt of gratitude. They've set up a house right there on the edge of campus. The kids have it available to them with computers and, and TV rooms and game rooms and study rooms. And, and it's obviously very, used a lot. Uh, the, the, the congregation, if you know it, is right on the edge of campus. And so they have students come every Sunday and Sunday night and Wednesday night and worship with them. And so the ministers are involved with those, uh, those children that we send down there. Is they're out in the world trying to live and walk with Christ and be completely committed followers. It was just so refreshing and it really was an exciting day to be able to spend that kind of time with them. Now both, I'm sure their parents would tell you that like any college students there's been some bumps in the road and there's been some challenges but I think every time both of them have just jumped at the opportunities before them and have just done the right thing. Uh, this summer in the college group we're going to look at the spiritual disciplines And so we're gonna spend three days a week, Sunday, three sessions a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday nights, going through the disciplines to help those college students as as some of them are leaving and some are here just for the summer, to help them be completely committed followers of Christ, to help them along that road. And so we're gonna help them in the training and the disciplining and kinda go through that this summer with them. So I think it's an exciting summer. Uh, Psalm 23, let's get right to it. Yeah, this is an exciting psalm. Unfortunately, this psalm is often reserved for funerals. That's about the only time I've heard it read the last four or five years. I really haven't heard it too many times, but I do hear it just about every funeral. It's often reserved for possibly uh, hospital beds or, or, or very, very difficult times. But as we go through it I, I, and we look at the context and we look at the who, what, when, when, why, and how, and we go through the different levels of interpretation and we try to identify something, I want you to understand right up front my bias. I don't think this was written for the bad times I think it's exactly the opposite I think this was written to be read during the good times now you're going to see some of that as we go through and you'll see my rationale but I don't think when David wrote this he said now 3,000 years ago I'd like for them to read this at every funeral I don't I don't think he said that I think he was writing it almost as an introspection almost writing it to himself now, it is, let's look a little bit at the context as we go through this. And I hope that you, you understand my bias. That's it as we go into it. That's how I view this psalm. And, and as we go through it, perhaps you'll share some of those same thoughts. But let's look a little bit at the context. Typically, the most, three most important questions of biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. And so we look at the historical, biblical, and literary context. So what's the historical context? In the book of Psalms, there's about 150 psalms. Uh, about 75 of those, roughly half, are written by David, or at least attributed to him. Uh, there's one psalm by Moses, attributed to Moses. There's other psalms attributed to four or five other people, a couple of the psalms uh, to Solomon. Uh, one to a group of 23 singers, or 23 psalms to groups of singers attributed to him. So they come from a variety of sources. The book of Psalms is truly a collection of psalms. But I think you need to be very careful with it because I've heard too often that it's just a psalm book. It was a songbook book for the early Jews. It was just a song, it's what they sang all these songs. Well, I don't see that as we go through and study it. philip has been leading us on a study of the psalms in the college class. And so every week we go t- verse by verse through one of the psalms. And we've been doing it for several months now. And what you find out very quickly is some of the psalms are very inappropriate for singing. <laughs> it's certainly very inappropriate for singing in corporate worship. You're just not going to do that. And so glance through the Psalms tonight if you don't believe me. But some of them are inappropriate. They're excellent Psalms. There's nothing wrong. They're inspired by God. But that's not why they're written. They are poetry. And so, the historical context, there are poems for times of gladness, there are poems for times of sadness when you lament and you mourn. There are Psalms when you're going up to Jerusalem. In the historical context, some of them are written for historical events like the exile the return, the rebuilding of the temple. See, some of them are written for some very specific historical. But what you have, it is truly a collection. And so the historical context is very wide. And really, since Moses, one of them is attributed to Moses, the time period they cover. You know, so you've got 40 or so writers and you've got a time period of over a thousand years, maybe a little more. I mean, they really cover a wide period of time. But although it is not a book of songs, it's not a hymnal, I think both Jews and Christians alike go to them for times when they're mourning or times when they're happy. I think I think what ties them together, probably more than anything else, when you're looking at the historical context, is that the authors of each psalm are really are really revealing, really giving away their and expressing their emotions and their experiences at a very and sometimes a very base level, something we can relate to because there are expressions of doubt sometimes, there's expressions of trust other times, there's expressions of I just don't know. It's kind of the same things that we go through every single day. And so I think that's why people love the book of Psalms. Uh, The biblical context, they are uh, typically called a book of poetry. So the books of poetry follow the books of history. So you have 12 books of history, you have five books of poetry, and then you have all the prophets. So if you open your Bible up, the biblical context is right in the middle. I think that's very appropriate in so many so many ways. But that's kind of the, uh, the but, but then we look at the literary context. You know, there, I, I think the most important thing to understand as a whole is that the Psalms were written for so many different purposes and that they are Hebrew poetry. Now, that's very different than reading a narrative in the history or very different than reading prophecy because Hebrew poetry is not like our poetry where typically it rhymes at the end, you know, and you, you go through a couple of lines or maybe the third line rhymes with the first line. or it's not, It doesn't rhyme at the end. Typically, Hebrew poetry uses something called parallelism. And so you typically, not all the time, but typically have two lines. First line expresses the idea. The second one expands it. Sometimes it says the same thing, and thus it's called synonymous parallelism. Sometimes it says something different, and it's called antithetical parallelism. But it's parallelism, and it doesn't... Frankly, it, when you think of poetry and, and the, the, the way you read it, and, and how it flows from the tongue, when you translate it, it doesn't do that very well. Because it's, for, it's, it's a different type of poetry. So it doesn't always flow, and even in Psalm 23, as beautiful as it is, and the copy that I gave to you is from the King James Version, if you want to use that or you want to use your Bible. That is a good translation. It it does flow very neatly. But still, there's going to be some times when you're reading, you say, this isn't very good poetry. No, actually, it's excellent poetry. It's just Hebrew poetry. It's just different than what we're used to. So you'll see as we go through it, these little couplets, where there's a line, and then the next line uh, emphasizes a little bit more. And so this particular, we're still looking at that context of this psalm, Psalm 23, I think it's in two parts. The first four verses are different than the next four verses, and now you're, the next two verses. So you'll get that when we go through it, and you'll kind of understand some of that. If you have the handout, you'll kind of see how I have that divided up. Okay, let's start out. Let's just go through it verse by verse and see if there's something we can pull out of it. Now, when you go into to study a, a passage, a parable, a verse... I think there's a, a very, it's very appropriate to know why are you doing that. Why are we studying this passage? And what question are we trying to answer? And I think with this passage tonight, knowing the, the vision the elders have given us, knowing the direction the elders have given us the last few months, I think the question to answer is, how can Psalms 23 help me be a completely committed follower of Jesus? So that's the question we're going to try to answer. How can this psalm, that's why we're studying it, so that it helps me to be a completely committed follower of Christ. Okay, at the top of each one of your psalm 23, at the very top, it often will say a psalm of David. I just, probably every version still does that. Uh, it'll, it, there's often just kind of a little, you know, just a little inscription or a little something. That sometimes it'll say a psalm of Moses or a psalm of Solomon. It might have a musical notation, it might have something else, but it's just written. That Psalm of David, most academic people, most archaeologists, most uh, students of the Bible uh, understand that that is not, probably not in the original. When David wrote this, he probably didn't say a Psalm of David. And a Psalm of David, he Hebrew, the of, doesn't necessarily mean that he wrote it. It could be a Psalm for David, a Psalm pertaining to David, a Psalm about David, a Psalm, that of... You know, one of the challenges of of translating is it's not word for word. Some people say, well, I like my version of the Bible because it's word for word. There's no such thing. You cannot translate word for word. There's not always that one word that matches something. And this is a perfect example of that. What What most translations translate as of, the Hebrew word for that actually has a broad range of meanings. And so I'm going to point that out several times as we go through. But I think this is a psalm of David, and I don't think... But there's very, few people that, there's very few people that would argue that that, it, that, that it's not, let's say that it's not a Psalm of David. It certainly fits his life when we go through it. You'll see that it fits very neatly. Uh, now, what I can't tell you is Psalm um, David, I can't tell you when he wrote it. There's just no indication. Was it early when he was a shepherd 24-7? Seven, you know, all the time he was out in the fields. Was it early? Was it when he got that great promise from, or was it when he was anointed king, or was it when he got that great promise from God to, to bless his house forever, to establish his throne forever, Second Samuel 7? Was it then? Was it toward the end of his life when he had sinned, with that whole Bathsheba thing, and then his whole life just kind of fell apart? You know, really for the rest of the written record on him, it really was a disaster, and his life just crumbled, and his family just crumbled? Was, was it, did he write it then? I don't know. I think looking at it, my study of it, I would say it's late in his life. It shows, I think it shows a great maturity. It certainly is written, I, I, it's after the time he was a shepherd, and I think it was after the time that he was given that promise in 2 Samuel 7. So it was later in his life. Okay, let's go through it. The Lord, I'll stop right there. This is exegesis, so we get to stop a lot. The Lord, what did David mean when he said, the Lord? What did that mean to him? Now, he, he's going to, he's, he's using this poetry to explain something. We'll figure out in a second what it is. But what the, when he said the Lord, what did that mean? Well, there's a clue in the Hebrew in that because that is the Yahweh. You've heard Randy talk about that. That's the word that's used for God, the Jew used for God. That he, you know, when I was studying Hebrew, they warned us very early on that when, you, when you're studying, if you study with a rabbi, which I had an opportunity to do for, for a while, if you study with a rabbi, when you get to Yahweh, don't say Yahweh because for them it is so reverent the very name of God is to be held up and it's not to be said and so this is that Yahweh in fact many rabbis would say when you're reading along they want you to say when you got to that and you were translating it rather than saying Yahweh you would say the name you just say the name because everybody would know that's the name of the Lord you know or you might say Adonai which is kind of a derivative a rough derivative of which means the Lord Um, And so when David says the Lord, now remember, he was a shepherd. And and of course, everything else he went through. But what did he think of when he thought of the Lord? Now, if this is later in his life, he clearly would have thought, you know, he really lived in a different set of boxes than we do. We we live in different boxes than David, so he thinks of it very differently than we do. We live in this church box. We live in a house box. We live in a car box. We have a classroom that we go to. We kind of live in these boxes, and that's kind of our life. His box as a shepherd is God's creation. He sits up and he looks at the stars every single night. Last time I looked up at the stars and, and that kind of detail was when I was in Texas and, and spent a lot of time out at night in the military. And, and it's just overwhelming when the sun goes down. That many stars, just just it just takes you every night. That's the, the, the Lord. When David says the Lord, that's who he's thinking of is that Lord is his creator. When he says Yahweh, he's talking about the Lord that that goes from Genesis, the creator, to the one that created Adam and Eve and the fall, and he thinks of that whole story of the Israelite nation all the way to to his time. The one that had that great covenant with Abraham, and maybe went on to Isaac and Jacob, and then he made a covenant with David called the Davidic covenant. That's who he's thinking of. That's his... Very elevated and exalted view of the lord he doesn't just say that uh passing it's just not something that flows out of his mouth in in, in many in a trivial way so the lord is mine now let me stop you again that's not grammatically a good place to stop but i'm going to stop there i think that's a bookend i think we're going to see this same bookend again now what am i saying he starts out with the lord and me david Lord, my. He's telling us there's a relationship between the Lord and me. This whole psalm is trying to explain that relationship. Now look down at the very last verse, verse 6. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Once again you have the Lord and David. See it starts with the Lord and David, it ends with the Lord and David. And what he's trying to do in between is explain that relationship. That's very tough to do. Very hard to explain. I mean, David clearly had a very deep relationship with God and a long-term relationship, a relationship where the creator of the universe talked to him. You know, and at one point David said, Why me? Back to him. I mean, really a, a close relationship. And David has got... He wants to explain that. Perhaps he wants to figure it out for himself what it means. But, he, but I think he wants to explain it to others so they can have that same type of close relationship. So you've got the Lord... Is my So it starts out, now I want you to remember that. In the background, that's what David's trying to explain, is this relationship between the Lord and David. Now, I haven't gotten to application yet, but of course you can see it applies to us I mean right off, and I think that's why people love this psalm so much. The Lord, and he gets to the first imagery. There's going to be two major images here, two major metaphors. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, that doesn't bring up as mu- many memories or, or thoughts as, uh, today as it did back then. I've never owned sheep. I've never really been around sheep. I saw sheep uh, when I was in Israel. We did, they, my professor did require me to spend some time with sheep more than I wanted to, and it was only about 10 minutes. But, but we're around these sheep, and what you learn very quickly in reading about them and studying is that sheep are very dependent. In any way you want to look at it, they're very dependent upon their shepherd. In fact, they respond just to his voice. There's a story of a shepherd uh, that walked out into a field in the middle of the night, and he was just talking to his wife. And he looked around, and there were 200 sheep running for him from the field just because they had heard his voice. So they were very dependent upon him to take care of them and to protect them. Now, those are going to be two important words, protection and provision. And we're going to see those as we go through here. So the Lord is my shepherd. So the first image he's using is my relationship to the Lord is like a shepherd to the sheep. Now David knew this, and remember he's it's kind of strange because he's saying my relationship to the Lord is like shepherd to sheep, where I'm the sheep. I'm <laughs> not the shepherd, I'm the sheep. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now that's another I just feel like that's a really hard phrase to translate. It sounds so simple. Uh, some of the versions will say I do not lack so it's kind of a present tense. Many will say, I will not want, so it's kind of a future tense. And so you can see just from the different versions of the Bible that, that Hebrew experts have a hard time translating that. It doesn't just, it's not, a, you can't do it word for word. In fact, if you really want to translate it, you're going to have to use about three as three times as many words, mainly because the verb itself is so complex. It's a continuing state. And so one, one author of a, of a Hebrew textbook, a fairly popular textbook, Said he'd translate it this way: "The Lord is my shepherd; I have never lacked; I don't lack now, and I don't ever expect to lack." Did you see that continuing state? Past, present, and future. It's a very complete term, a very full term. This idea of no want, no lacking. And do you see, do you start to see that idea of trust? that idea of I don't lack I never have I don't now and I sure don't expect to in the future why because I trust the Shepherd now we certainly the application that's clear David is saying that's my relationship with the Lord he's using the relationship to explain about the Shepherd to, to explain that so he says the Lord is my shepherd I've never wanted anything I don't want anything now and I don't have any wants in the future he makes me to lie down in green pastures he leads me beside the still waters now it's kind of the same thought in two different ways one is this idea of grassy meadows and it's not an idea of you know the king james says he maketh me to lie down it's not like he's going out to the sheep and ripping up their feet and pulling them down and making them you know he's making them sleep it's more like he's creating an environment where they can sleep look sheep as i'm told don't like to sleep they're kind of like us they're scared of predators they're scared of the next meal. They're scared of friction. They're scared of the alpha male. I mean, there's all kinds of challenges for sheep, but when the shepherd is present, they're able to sleep in those grassy meadows, those green pastures. They're able to lay down and lay aside their cares, not worry about the predators, not worry about whatever it is that sheep worry about. And so he says it kind of in two ways. He says he leads me and pass. Excuse me. He he uh, leads me beside the still waters. Kind of the same idea. You know, you all know, you've heard the story that sheep, if they get into it, they don't like the, the, the water, the flowing water. There's lots of explanations of why, but one shepherd that wrote a book about it, about Psalm 23, said that the reason they don't like it is somewhere along the way, a sheep put his foot in the water and they, it washes them away because they're top-heavy. You know, they they're kind of big, robust, lots of hair, little big feet. They stick the feet down, they're top-heavy, they fall over. There's no way for them to flip back over. There's no way for them to swim. They're done for. So they don't like flowing water. And so what the shepherd has to do is go out and build these rocks, put these rocks in, stop that, that stream from flowing back up some of it, not the whole stream, but some of it, and have some still waters. See, it's a beautiful imagery that David is using here. The the Lord is my shepherd. I've never wanted, I don't want, I never will want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. People in the the time this was written would understand this, especially from the viewpoint of a sheep. He restores my soul. He leads me in the... Now, your soul could be translated... It's nephesh, so it could be translated life. It's not necessarily your spiritual soul. It could be your life. He rest- you know, so it could be kind of related to the sheep, but I think there's kind of a dual purpose there. He's talking about our souls. David is talking about his own soul, but at the same time, he's talking about life. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Now, we, we don't uh, don't think Paul and the righteousness of God. That's not really what we're talking about there. It's not what David is talking about Is he leads you in the right way. You know, there's two paths. Psalm one, the, probably the introduction, the whole book of Psalms says there's two ways, and so so he leads you in the right path. He takes you know, so as, as a as a shepherd has to take those sheep from this pasture to another pasture to another one. May have to go across some paths that maybe go through some valleys or go up the sides of hills. There might be some dangerous ones, and then some that are not so dangerous. Well, the sheep trust the shepherd to take them down the right path. Now, clearly. There may be kind of a dual meaning here where it is that idea of righteousness also, especially when you combine it with the idea of the soul. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. But you see that imagery of the shepherd. And why does he do it? For his name's sake, for his glory. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When I was a uh, young child, I can still remember this day, I, don't, I didn't really understand that. Yay, like a football game, yay. I and mean, it's not really a yay like that. It's more of a, uh, in some sense it's a transition, it's even. Even though, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now the word for death, this may be why it's always in funerals, but the word death doesn't just mean death at the end of your life. The word death can mean very difficult times, very dangerous times. You know, the word that's used there is not only used for the physical death. It's used for other things. So what he's saying is, or even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I go down that, that path that is dark, and there's a, there's a tough fog, and, and I can't see, and there's no light, even though I walk through that, I will fear no evil. Now that phrase long, we could talk about that for two weeks. The whole idea, remember Jesus so many times saying, don't be afraid. Listen, you want a theme that's throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament? It's the idea of don't fear. 380 times in the Old Testament, there's that idea of don't be afraid. Why? Because we're human, we are afraid. We know we can't do it on our own, and so there's this idea of don't be afraid. It says, I will fear no evil. And once again, we get the reason why for you are with me. It is the presence of his Lord. It's the presence of the shepherd. See, that's why the sheep can sleep, because the, the shepherd is presence. Yes, he provides them for them. Yes, he protects them. But it, he does that through his presence with them. And so those are the three great, great things here, is that provision, that protection, and certainly the presence of the shepherd. For you are with me. You are rod... And your staff, they comfort me. Strange passage that a rod and a staff would comfort you. A staff is that shepherd's crook, most likely. And so it's what's used to pull the sheep out of the holes. And so the the wells or whatever they've fallen down, or to kind of use the other end to kind of gently push them in the right direction. You don't have to beat sheep, you don't have to discipline them. They'll kind of go in the right direction if you just gently nudge them, especially if they're going as a group. And so that's what that shepherd's crook is for. The, the rod, your rod and your staff, it's not like the shepherd has a rod he's going to beat the sheep with. He has a rod, a short rod. That's for predators. That's a defensive weapon. And the sheep see that. They know that he uses that against the wolves. He uses that against any predators that might come around. And so that that's why the rod and the staff are so comforting. Now, I think at the end of verse 4, we start to get a transition. You've, you've seen that... He's, he's described his relationship to God to his Lord in the terms of a Shepherd but I think there's a shift now not everybody agrees with me some people think a good number of people think I don't think it's a majority but a good number of people think that think that that continues that verses five and six are also talking about a shepherd I don't I think we, we, there's a transition I think he's using another metaphor to explain the Lord and David the first one was a shepherd and a sheep but here's, a, here's another one. It's that idea of a gracious host. We've all been there. We've all been to the table at Thanksgiving or been to the, been, gone home after you've been away for a long time uh, where the host provides just more food than you could ever hope to eat. Uh, And that's what the the picture is here, which is also a a common image in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The idea of a feast and all of us eating it together, and especially eventually all of us that are followers will be eating with, uh, with Christ in heaven. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, I want to stop just for a moment. Nowhere in the psalm so far has he said you're never going to have any difficult or dangerous circumstances. There's never anything bad going to happen to you if you're a follower, if you're the sheep. It doesn't say that. What he says is, in the presence of your enemies, in the presence of the world, you prepared this magnificent table for me. And in fact, at the table, you anointed my head. You have got the position of honor. And I don't let anointed scare you. That scares some people. Anointed? Oh no, we can't talk about that. All anointing is, is you're preparing a person for a purpose. Now sometimes you see it with oil, olive oil. Sometimes you see it with the laying on of hands throughout both Old Testament and New Testament. Sometimes you see an anointing with a song. Sometimes you see an anointing just with words. But all you're doing is is a group or a person is anointing somebody else, and they're preparing him for a purpose. They're marking him, saying, now he is ready. It's time to go out. He's equipped, as as Bo would have said this morning. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. You know, we, we often think of, you know, you go to Golden Corral or you go to Cracker Barrel and you'd really like to have your tea glass filled up. You know, even if it's the middle of the winter, you want that iced tea. And you want it filled up quickly. But that's not what it's talking about. Literally, literally, you, the cup is overflowing. The cup is on your table. You have all this food and it's just, it's got so much in it. It's just falling out. You're drinking it. You're taking it, but it's just flowing out. See, he's using that imagery to show how much God has blessed David. I think it's beautiful imagery when you go from that the idea of a shepherd explaining our relationship with God to the idea of being at this this with this gracious host that just fills us beyond belief. In verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Goodness, the idea of uh, it's the word toad, It's the idea of beautiful good things are going to follow me all the days of my life. Mercy. It back up to Yahweh. Mercy is the word that Randy's talked about it quite a bit. The idea of hesed its the Hebrew word. It's that idea of loving kindness, sometimes it's translated. Sometimes translated love, often translated mercy. It really has to do with covenant love. It's when God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's, it, mercy is, 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 has been often said, you know, grace is getting what you don't deserve, but mercy is getting what you deserve. Because we have a God that created the world and a God that says he will bless us. And so that's what that whole idea of surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, he ends up with, he's with God. His relationship is pure and whole. He started out with, I, the Lord is my he starts out the Lord. See, there's bookends there. And in between, he's trying to describe that relationship. Well, what's the essence of that relationship? How do we figure out what it means to us today? How can this passage help us be completely committed followers of Jesus? And I think the core answer to that is is very simple. It's in trust. This is how we should trust. We should trust as a sheep. We should trust as God provides this banquet for us, we should trust. That's the kind of Lord that we have. And so we should trust. And so how do, how can we trust? You know, faith is a big word, too. And, and some people in the religious world think faith is only belief, a mental assent. It is belief, 10% of it. That's Joel's percentage. Another 10% is obedience. Clearly, the Bible teaches that faith has an obedience uh, component to it. So you have faith and you have you have belief and obedience, but I think the big one and the hard one and it connects directly to the word completely in our mission statement is the idea of trust. See, that's the big one. That's the hard one. How do you trust? And what can help you to trust? Well, let me give you, a, just as we close out, I want to just give you a, a simple little suggestion. You know, God, David is clearly saying, God is going to protect you and provide for you by His presence. Now let's take that to the New Testament. What was one of the last words? Some of the last words of Jesus as He as He as the the author of Matthew finished it up, and we have the Great Commission. And what were the last little words of that? And lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. See, God will bless us. He blessed David by his presence. He provided for and protected him. He will bless us. God will bless us by his presence. He will provide for us and he'll protect for us. And my hint for you, my recommendation, my challenge for you is don't save Psalm 23 for your funeral. Don't save it for those bad times. This is a Psalm to be studied and read and memorized and quoted and thought about, and meditated on during the good times. Because it doesn't talk about the bad times here. He's talking about green pastures, when things are green and, and, and the paths of righteousness, and, and fearing no evil. And this table where he has food, and he's been anointed, and his cup is overflowing. The, the whole point, the whole poetry, the point and the psalm is very, very positive. So let me me encourage you, don't save it. Use this psalm. Memorize it now. When times are really good and something really good happens to you, like Philip and I went down to uh, Chattanooga and had a great experience with Emily and Connor. Use it at those kind of times. When things are going good, because there's going to be some bad times. There's going to be some difficult and dangerous circumstances. And you want to be able to have that, that psalm and understand that psalm. And you want to have been living that psalm. Perhaps tonight we've studied, you haven't yet become a completely committed follower of Christ. Uh, if you'd like to do that tonight, or perhaps you're having a problem with trust issues with God, or maybe you'd just like to talk to one of the elders, I'd like to ask for you and invite you to come as we stand and sing.